If you're watching this on video, you'll see my black glasses I'm wearing. They're by Genesee, G-E-N-U-S-E-E.com, an eyewear company out of Flint, Michigan, founded, owned, and operated by my friend, Ali Rose. They employ the structurally unemployable locals and recently incarcerated. They are made from recycled plastic water bottles. They're the first eyewear brand in the U.S. to be completely circular economy. They donate 1% of their net proceeds to Flint Kids Fund, aiding in the long-term health and development of those affected by the Flint water crisis. I really like them. I wear them all the time. They're female-founded. They check a lot of boxes of things that I support, and they offered you guys a discount of, I think, 20%, something like that. So type in tea with SG at www.genesee.com, G-E-N-U-S-E-E.com, and get yourself a pair. Hey everyone, so I took about a week off because I broke my fucking foot and it's sucked. I can't swim, but um, I'm back at it. I'm attempting, at least if the Wi-Fi works. And uh, I'm talking to Lauren Sherman from Business of Fashion. She's someone who I've been reading for a long time and who has what I consider a really unique voice that distills I mean, literally, you know, the business side of things and the artistic side and applies the lens of of fashion and clothing to more just like art making and the infrastructural and entrepreneurial aspects. And I've always looked to her for, you know, what are like the most, she's always ending up writing about like the most relevant topics at that moment, at least to me. And so having her on the show, I'm very excited. And, uh, we were already talking about some New York, LA stuff. And I was like, you know what? This is actually good to talk about. So she's in New York, but but you're considering or you're on the yeah, way somewhere else. Yeah, we're about to. Th- thanks for having me. That's It's very Thank kind you of coming. you. Um, yeah, we are moving to LA in mid-July. I don't know if it's permanent Imminent. or not. Wow. But yeah, I think, we, I think we're going to give it like six months and this is the first time in my career where being in New York or being in somewhere in Europe wasn't ex- extremely crucial. Like I'm not going to fashion week in Europe this fall. I'm not, there's not really going to be a fashion week in New York. And I've, I've kind of been tethered to the city for 15 years because of that. And, and for many other reasons, like it felt like that's where everybody was, but now more and more people are moving out to LA and we're all going to be working remotely, you know, for at least another six months, I'd, I'd say probably more like a year, depending on when the vac- vaccine happens. So we just figured my husband and I, he's independent. He runs his own newsletter business. So we just figured we'll, we'll try it. And also will be nice to be able to access more hiking and, and things like that super yeah, close course. to home. So yeah. we'll see. I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's interesting out there right now. There's a lot of creativity happening and entrepreneurship. And I'd like to see how a different industry works. It's such a company town and New York isn't like that. So I'm, That's cool to hear you say. I, I completely agree. It's a brand town, Los Angeles, and New York is a person who makes stuff town. Totally. Yeah. And so I think being closer to the entertainment industry and getting a sense of how that all really operates will be fascinating. So we'll see. It was a strange 
for me personally, and and we, Lauren and I have like communicated peripheral, like a little bit over the years, but like we don't really know each other. Um, I don't think you know like too much about any about you know my my work, um, but just like a little background in that lens that I launched a clothing line in 2017 living in Los Angeles for a few years at that point. And my experience, I, I had just left, I had left a gigantic company, Apple, and wanted to do this on my own. And I like put myself to school. Like I was, you know, reading stuff like, you, you know, your writing and, and business of fashion and talking to everyone who I could talk to and putting myself through all the steps, learning cut and sew, like learning how to make cads and, um, it was really strange for me because I'm, I'm a New Yorker, like my whole life, this was this tiny window that I lived in Los Angeles, but everything that I did when I did all my research and I tried to make it like a New York brand, but you know, I'm living in Los Angeles temporarily. It made no sense. And it was the infrastructure in Los Angeles was so much better. And you know what, actually, like now, I'm basing everything out of New York, and I'm spending five, maybe six times the amount of money to do that. Like, and it's, it's only because my focus has shifted. And I don't want to run day to day, I don't want to do all the things that I did then. But when I went super granular, which is how I wanted to start it. I wanted to learn everything. I wanted to literally like pick out the thread, you know? And the options in Los Angeles were infinitely better. Like there was no comparison. Everything that I would do in New York, at least what, what, what my network provided was just like you pay a ridiculous premium to work with someone that the value is not necessarily like, you could work with someone who, you know, oh, they're renowned for blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, they're, they're sewing something that is going to be the exact same thing that you can get in East LA by someone who's incredible. And like, you could go there and you could, you know, physically watch them do it. And uh, it was, it was a weird thing just cause like, it made me feel probably what you're realizing now, like New York is just, it does not have the support system we're not incentivized to do stuff in New York at all. It hasn't adapted to like the internet. I don't know. Yeah. And, and I would assume the, there's obviously a lot of clothing production in New York. I think more than people realize, especially yeah. on the mass level in places like Queens, but in LA, it's still a biz, a real business. And you can get, especially when it comes to like denim and t-shirts and, and dye houses and things like that. It's really high quality and, and yeah. where a lot of luxury brands make that product regardless. And, and so, yeah, it just feels like, I know it's expensive there and I obviously have a lot of friends as I'm sure everyone listening to this does that have moved in and out and moved back and forth, but it does just feel like there's a little more space there to, to do interesting things and, I just want to see what it's like. And, you know, I, we've spent so much time out there visiting and, sure. you know, a month at a time or what have you, but 
but it does feel like there's a little more opportunity there. And this, this whole thing has, it really has just, this is a thing that we've been wanting to do forever. And I, I think if, if the pandemic didn't, hadn't happened, we would not be planning this right now, but it just, oh, wow. it opened up this opportunity of, well, if it doesn't really matter where you are anyway for work purposes, then I might as I mean, well. You're preaching to the choir. Yeah. I'm yeah. in Mexico. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. fascinating. And, and I would, I will say that I've been in New York this whole period. We live in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn and it's not, I've enjoyed this time. I mean, we're really, really lucky that we haven't gotten sick and um, we have a nice apartment that's big enough and we're not like stepping over each other but generally I mean being in New York we have access to food we have access to everything it's that that access thing I mean we can't we have to bike everywhere we can't go on the subway but it it's actually been really really okay being here and I think nice yeah (laughs) yeah and also during during the you know the last few weeks with the protest it's it's also felt you know it's it's been good to be here and to be in the middle of that in a way that, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's been interesting. So we we're not fleeing the way a lot of people did, but yeah. it just, it opened up this opportunity. There's so sure. many people I know who are like, Oh, we might just live here for the next two years or what have you. And that's, that's a really interesting result that came out of this whole thing. For me, New York at this stage represents a place. So my last 10 days in New York, the beginning, it was the end of February, beginning of March, um, wasn't an accident to be there. It was like openings of, you know, on, on Broadway and stuff. And I just basically came back to stack culture. And I did, I did opera, I did ballet, I did concerts, I went to rendezvous with French cinema. I was at Lincoln Center every day, basically. And just like... That is incomparable. New York has that. Like, you cannot do arts anywhere, even Paris. Like, it doesn't compare to New York. And Paris is incredible. But there's nothing like experiencing the arts in New York. But making stuff in New York sucks. And the the infrastructural support that you mentioned that I experienced exactly that like yeah sure if I want to make if I want to print five thousand you know cool and they and they have amazing options and I will be not just competitive but probably better off in New York but if I'm starting something like yeah. I have you know it makes no sense and what I ended up doing now is I'm I'm working with a company called Cala I don't know if you're familiar oh, yeah. but basically. Okay, cool. Yeah, I had Andrew Wyatt, the founder, on a few weeks ago. Oh, nice. Um, so I, I just, oh yeah, totally. That that'd be awesome. Um, I'd love your thoughts, but but yeah, I, I went with Cala because it was like, at this stage in my life, it's valuable to me to. I'm I'm working on a film. I have music coming out. I just like I don't want to do the granular work that I did beforehand and. I'm paying, I was at like literally like going straight. I don't mind saying these now. I was at $6 for the shirts I was making with an upcharge for oversized. And now I'm at like 18. And it's like, it's just for life. It's like worth it for me. I think at least I'm trying it, but like, it's that different. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. There's all these new companies opening up that I did a piece on this last year that are essentially like service providers. And they're like, we'll right. do everything for you. And you just do the creative part. We'll do the production. We'll do the distribution. We'll do the marketing. But that means that you make way less money. Yeah, And, and it's just a matter of, I talked to Adrian from Dover Street Market about it. And the cool. way he talked about it was a lot of these young creative people, they're not, I think this idea of being a designer who wants to be like Christian Dior and work in your atelier and make a, make a tour. Like, I don't think that's something that that many people aspire to anymore. They want to design and have do fashion, but they want to do all this other stuff as well. And that kind of setup for, for brain space is just more worth it. Right. And you see so many young designers, especially in the U S but also in Europe who really, really worry about the business side of things and they don't understand or they don't know how to make it work. I mean, it's not their fault. Most people don't, and it's it's pretty difficult to make it work, but they end up, see a lot of promising young designers really lose their their creativity pretty quickly just because they're worrying about money and, and how to actually get stuff produced. And so- The entrepreneurial aspects of it, yeah. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, it's a really tough business. And if you have all your eggs in it, I don't know. Every year I'm like, this is crazy. It gets crazier and crazier. Yeah. I mean, I experienced it with your, your, your breakdowns, your resources are incredible. Like, like when I was building my you know, business, whatever, like, like I would read everything that you, I still read, uh, you know, most of what you write, but, but like I was reading it like, like the Bible at the time. And it provides a wonderful template for, you know, how to do things. I, I think in, in, in clothing and fashion, there's, it's different from music where like, like there was a, a, a cold wall put out an article in hype and sorry, in a high snobiety this week that broke down their entire business at creative to distribution, marketing, everything. And like those things exist in fashion in ways that it doesn't exist in music or film. And that's really cool, I think. But That's what great. you realize is like how much of your job is the thing that you want to do. And I crossed that threshold early on a few months in and I was like, okay. And then that's when I hit pause on the brand because it was like, okay, cool. I just did all of this. And like seven eighths, I'd say, of my time was working on things that, that, I, that I dedicated, you know, I'd say almost, I spent almost a year focusing on doing all these things. But then I realized like most of it is irrelevant to what I'm in it for. And like, we got really good with the social ads and stuff. And then it was like, wait, but like I'm spending, you know, this is like an hour of every day that I'm spending on making sure. And, and like, yeah, whoa, like the agencies that I talk to are looking at my numbers and they're like, yeah, we can't do better than what you're doing on your own. And that's cool and all, but like, that's my life. And, and I, I don't yeah. give a shit about social media management. That's not what I want to be doing. And I wasn't able to hand that off in a way that was economically efficient. I had to yeah. just keep doing it. So I, I hit pause on it because it was like, I don't want to be an entrepreneur. Like yeah. I, 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 that, that was the time in my life where I realized like everyone had sort of made me think I was an entrepreneur for this 
long time. And I was like, wait a second, I, I'm, a, I'm making stuff. Like, yeah. you know, I'm a quote creative, whatever. <laughs> and like developing the skill set around the entrepreneurship was cool and all, but like once I did, I didn't want any of it. And that's why like, you know, working with an Andrew at, at Cala, it's like, yeah, like, okay, I don't need to fundraise and I can just do the stuff that I care about. And then I have like six more days in my week, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think that a lot of people who like to work independently are kind of pushed the last 15 years have been this age of entrepreneurship. I think after mm -hmm. the last recession in particular, I did a story on Harvard Business School for Marie Claire years ago about all those fashion and beauty startups were, that were coming out of there. And a lot of the HBS professors said, you know, pre-recession, everybody wanted to go into hedge funds, finance, that kind of stuff. And then yeah. post-recession, everyone wanted to open their own business. But I think a lot of people conflate the idea of that you want to be kind of an independent contractor and you want to run it. That is running your own business, but it's different from, like you said, raising money. Mm -hmm. And all you have to manage is, is your finances, not like a mm -hmm. whole company's finances. And, and that is it's not attractive to me in any way. That's for sure. I really, I was a freelancer for a long time and really enjoyed it, but I, and I really like working for entrepreneurs, but I would not want, want to be one myself. It looks really attractive until you go granular and you realize both the, uh, you know, the, the brain space, like the timeshare and the energy share, and then literally the finances of it they change, you know, um, once you, you can stay on this really low level. Like if you're just making t-shirts and you're just like putting those out and whatever, and you get a good, you know, you, you, you have an incredible royalty basically like you're, but like if you go one level up, it gets really hairy and it's wonderful. You know, you could build something incredible, but you just have to understand what it is. I was talking to my friend. I posted this the other day, totally different industry. She does uh, multivitamins, but um, you know, actually it's not really different. It's like the same shit. You're making a product and you're selling it to the Instagram generation and whatever. This was what her business insider article said, $125 million valuation after a couple of years, massive, massive company. And this is my good friend. She's actually supposed to be here with me right now, but she just had a baby and we didn't want to risk, uh, travel, but yeah. she's talking about uh, on her Instagram about how business insider just wrote this article about her $125 million CEO. And she's broke and she was, we're going to do an episode about like the economics of it, of how you can be broke with a 125. She's not going to be broke forever. She's, she's going to be really yeah. good, but it's like, you know, I could, it would be a while before if you grow, if you do all this stuff properly and you really build a company, it's a long time before you're like really recouping. So that was kind of my, my, my take is like, you know what, I'd rather just like have a little bit and make this sufficient, make this self-sufficient. Like, like I, you know what, if I make like a dollar instead of nine dollars, like, like my revenue, my, my uh, proportions were like crazy. Like I was in like 80, 90% like yeah. at, at the early, cause I did everything. But it just was, it was like, it wasn't worth it to me. No. So I'd rather take a dollar or two, uh, you know, take a Yeezy style royalty, <laughs> you know, take, take a buck, but make it into something that, you know, 
doesn't kill my life it, and, and allows me to, um, to scale without having to capitalize. That's me personally. Yeah, I think more and more people of that are are you know newer generations but just generally people are are feeling that way and I wonder how it will shape business for the next 10 years because right. I just don't think there's definitely the out of the last recession there were all these new brands and I'm sure that will happen again especially for people who have already sold brands like serial entrepreneurs but I mm-hmm. do think that there is this sense of if you are privileged enough to have a life where you, you know, can enjoy your life, you want to do that. Like, I think people really want to enjoy their lives. Whereas before it was like work, work, work. And yeah, a lot of what I'm thinking about right now and starting to write about is this, like what comes after the experience economy, it's really about spirituality and like finding more meaning in your life because stuff isn't, making up for it and this whole pandemic has has made that even more obvious because you can't really buy anything anyway because there's no reason to even if you have the money mm-hmm. so like what are people going to spend their money on and i think i think a lot of people are just realizing it's not worth it i mean this is a little bit of a tangent but we've seen it in the publishing industry where there are all these magazines and the dream if you're a, a fashion journalist or or a print journal and magazine journalist is to be an editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair or Vogue or what have you. And it's just not many people want those jobs anymore because it's kind of like, why would I put up with all of that crap and, and dealing with advertisers who don't even want to advertise with me anymore when I could just be a freelance writer and make way less money, but be way happier. Stack or whatever, you know, have a newsletter yeah. that you charge people $4.99 a month for, or if you're really, really special, you, you know, do something that's more like 20 a month and you pocket a gigantic percentage of that. And you, yeah. you know, you can live with, if you have, if you have thousands of customers, single digit thousands of customers, you can be a rich person. Yeah. Like as crazy as that's, you could be like, like not like, Oh, I can fund my lifestyle. Like you can be rich with single digit with under 10,000 subscribers. You can be a rich person versus do I want to go climb the corporate ladder? You know, you had Graydon Carter on, uh, on recently, and I had Ash, his son, who's a good friend of mine. He was on my show a few weeks ago. And nice. uh, I was listening to your, your Graydon Carter episode. And he talks about airmail. And he talks about that uh, the Bank Street. They, have, they were trying to keep this. Thing. So, yeah, I, w- I wanted to talk to you about, like, I don't know, where do you see the positioning and, and I guess the next steps but with, like, big publishing independent publishing. I, I, I would put business of fashion kind of in the middle where you're not like a diet Prada or something like that, which is almost, as they say, it's kind of like a hobby for them, uh, which I'm sure they'll turn into a, they keep referring to, it. I don't know what's going to happen, but um, those are kind of the three level, you know, there's Vogue and then there's you. And then there's like the accounts that maybe make money. Maybe, I, I don't know. Where, where, where do you see things moving? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of BOF because I am 
I'm not the, I do own shares in the company. All, all of the employees are, are, you know, have, have a stake, but um, yeah, it's fantastic. And it, and it's a super modern way. My husband used to work at Vox and it was the same thing. Like it's, I think it's a really modern way to work. I think generally the publishing business overall, and, and I guess I can speak to legacy publishing versus versus independent publishers who are kind of coming up and, and a lot of them are venture capital backed, but you know, I just think advertising is not the future right now. You can still make money on advertising on video. And if you're something like Bon Appetit, which, you know, up until a couple of weeks ago was doing super, super well because they have videos that tons of people watch and in turn advertisers are all for it. But if you don't have that, the, the value of advertising in a print magazine or on a print magazine's website is really low when you have Instagram. Like I mm-hmm. think I did a story on this a couple of years back and, you know, Instagram and the magazines I wrote about were really didn't like it because it essentially said Instagram has made the need for these magazines from an editorial perspective and from an advertising perspective irrelevant. Why would you advertise with Vogue when you can connect with your customer directly online, have your message. Target Vogue's Instagram subscribers. Exactly. And then if you want authority, if you need authority, then you would advertise with like the gentlewoman, which is way cooler and way more authoritative. And that's where everyone who works at Vogue is, is looking. So, (laughs) so, so the, the value proposition, so much of the advertising in those magazines is relationship based. And I think that this, we had a piece on Condé Nast come out this week. And I think that this pandemic has essentially allowed a lot of those advertisers to cut bait and just say, sorry, we can't afford it and right. just never return. Something that was already on the way anyway. Yeah. yeah. And I think that the subscription model for general interest publications and trade publications is, is really smart. I mean, it's worked for years for trade publications. And I think it does work for general interest if you make yourself feel necessary. So New York, New Yorker, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, places like that. I think that the difficult proposition is going to be the Vanity Fairs of the world, the Cosmos of the world, the Esquires of the world. How do you make those, those books worth a subscription and also you they they're not going to have the same budgets even at a place like Hearst which has much smaller more conservative budgets than a Condé Nast or a you know versus New York Magazine really small budgets it's still not the economics are different so you're going to have to right. tweak how many people you have on staff you're going to have to tweak you know what what kind of work you put out and and see what kind of work people are willing to pay for and i don't think it necessarily means that um, you have to only do investigative deep reporting. I think that something like The Cut, which is you know a really compelling publication that people love, that they'll pay for something like that. But f- figuring out what people will pay for is is going to be really tough. And I think, you know, I think about the music industry a lot and how 
that all kind of blew up in what, like 2000 or what have you. And it, it just yeah. kept getting worse and worse. And it's only the last couple of years, it seems that it's starting to build back up again. And, and the subscription model is, has really started to work itself. I'm sure there, I don't know a lot about it. I'm sure it's really much more complicated than that, but I don't think that publishing ever got to that point. I don't think fashion did either. And so there's, there's just going to be a lot more fallout and it's going to be, it's going to take no one's. Oh, you mean like the disruption that music had was so definitive in that moment that it rebuilt the entire thing from scratch, but there was never a like wash the streets clean moment for publishing or fashion. hundred percent. And I, and I think, um, I think I would, this I would is... agree with that. Yes. Like in the music industry, a huge problem just to, to put a little, a little uh, angle on what you're saying one of the biggest problems in the music industry today, and this gets into racial diversity, literally, that a lot of the people who held the keys, who understood how things worked, are gone. Or they're protective. If they're still there, they're protective. They don't pass the knowledge on. There's no, um, there's no blog that you read. There's no book that you read. There's one book. There's, there's Donald Passman's book that just talks about the, uh, the legality, just all the legal stuff you need to know as an artist. But it's, you know, it's, it's whatever it is. It's 300 pages or something like that. And that's it. But there's very, you know, you're getting 1% of what you really need to know. And a lot of the attrition in the music industry during that moment meant that the knowledge and uh, the systemic knowledge is gone. Mentorship gone passing through generations of, you know, uh, the head of promotion for a company that was grooming the VP of promotions or something who was then going to groom someone else that stopped. So now after 15 years, there's no, that, that does that process was halted. And we did not start thinking about that until the last few, we the music industry did not start thinking about that until the last few years. So, a huge effect of that if you compare to publishing and fashion like that's that never quite happened to publishing and fashion in a good way i think um it didn't have the rebuild the whole model from scratch moment that the music industry has which which ended up now on the on the corporate level on the on the on the wall street level it's a good thing on the granular level it has not been a good thing because the money's the, the, the overall pot is much bigger, but it, the money's consolidated. Uh, but what so, so what happened in a really fucked up way is that the lack of generational passing down of knowledge increased the consolidation, increased the wealth gap. So even though there's so there's a lot of money in music today, it's it's more consolidated. No one no one predicted this. There's like, I don't, I can't name any, I predicted a lot of the things that would happen like subscriptions, but like I did not predict the effects of, oh, when you fire that guy who was old school or something like that, he takes with him seven other people who were about to be leaders in the industry and modernize it. And now those people are never going to develop because this knowledge is gone forever. Yeah, I mean, I see that in fashion too. I know that it's not totally comparable, but it's. I feel like fashion's behind. The, it, that industry is consolidating like crazy right now because mm -hmm. of the reasons. But there is, there. I mean, there's two lines to it. One is that fashion has transformed in the last 20 years from, you know, independent brands run, you know, separately from each other to 
consolidated two or three really big groups, own everything, own all the factories, vertically integrated. They own the retail experience and they control everything. So if you're an independent quote unquote fashion brand, it's really hard to to survive and make money and all that stuff. But there's also the thing that you said about firing all the old guys in retail. And I think this is more indicative of American fashion and doesn't really speak to the European system so much because they they have a recruitment and grooming like you you in the same way like P&G you go to LVMH mm-hmm. and you become an LVMH executive and maybe you hop to caring once in your career but there there's progression there whereas in fa- in fashion in the US and apparel retail generally what would be the 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 analog to that what would be the comparison of the u.s company like caring or lvmh there isn't one and that's part of the problem so (laughs) so there's i was just talking to ian rogers right before and i was like what should i talk about but yeah (laughs) that's so funny um i i think ian's really great and and that is an example of lvmh being smart about like not knowing what they don't know and hiring interesting people to try to change change the culture to an extent i mean it's a pretty rigid Ian built apple music was effective we were at adjacent offices and uh he left it was a horrible day for me when uh, oh. what he told me because it was it was like a great day and a horrible day because it was like an enlightening day but like he told me about two days before he told everyone else and he was like this was so early on we had just launched and i thought that this is the guy i'm, I'm gonna run with you know for like yeah. the next couple of years and then he's out I'm talking weeks into launch and I had no idea. Um, so I was so upset and, and he didn't like get replaced. It was like oh, he wow. did everything and then he's out. Um, but then, you know, what he was doing was very exciting to me. And he ended up being like the main person that I talked to when I was putting together my thoughts around clothing and he helped shape all of my ideas. I've, I've, I've said this a few times. I always credit Ian, yeah. but yeah, but but seeing him do that was super. It was like Kanye's stuff and Ian's movements were really, really empowering and and focus, you know, focusing for me. Where I realized, like, oh wait, you can apply the same ideas in that way. And where is he going? Oh, he's going to Paris to this, you know, to to work for these, you know, these people who built these these kinds of brands. And I'm like, wait a second, like, it made me rethink, you know. Yeah, and and it's it was super exciting when when they hired Ian and you know, Caring ended up hiring someone with a similar background okay. as their chief digital officer and and it's it's really exciting and those companies understand that. They you know, in the same way Apple hired Paul Denev, it's it's a similar thing. Like they understand that that it's about a certain kind of person, not necessarily the industry. Whereas apparel retail in the US, like there there are a couple groups that are want to be like an LVMH or a Caring or a Richemont, but they really it's a fundamentally a different business and they would never think about hiring an Ian Rogers to come in and help. What them are out. those differences? So the biggest difference, so if you think of something like a PVH or the the guy who's running PVH right now, Stefan Larson is super smart. And, and I think he's, he's the president of PVH. Um, 
I think that as he builds, he might be able to do something really interesting. But generally, if you look at something like PVH or even Ralph Lauren, which is independent, um, Capri, which owns um, Michael Kors, Jimmy Choo, and Versace, they all want to be. And then there's one called Tapestry, which owns Coach Kate Spade and Stuart Weitzman. They all want to be part of this high fashion global brand thing that LVMH and Caring in particular have been able to build. The The biggest difference is the way that the clothes are made and marketed. So when you go to TJ Maxx, you go into a TJ Maxx, there, there is a chance that you might see a Gucci bag behind the counter once or twice. But when you go and look on the racks, what names do you see? You see Michael Kors, yeah. you see Sometimes you see BB coach, you, you know. see BB, you see Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, all these, you know, stalwarts of American fashion. And, and the problem is they didn't make their money on luxury goods. Mm-hmm. The luxury groups are, they essentially make most of their money on handbags and accessories and perfume. Ralph Lauren Tommy Hilfiger, they make money selling clothes at Macy's and then selling clothes at off price. And off price is a huge part of, you know, either their own off price outlets or the discount retailers. That's a huge part of the business. And that was never part of the model for those European groups. And so when the companies here started to see the success of those European groups and wanted to kind of emulate it, it's just impossible. It's not when, when PVH hired Ralph Simmons to be creative director at Calvin Klein, that it was spectacular and super fun to cover, but it's the article. There are amazing articles, like even relevant. I I read that was in a time period where I was like reading, I was on every subscription and I was reading like every detail of that time period um there's amazing lessons and understanding to be learned from reading through the entire timeline like this is like someone should make it like a like a 30 minute doc of like the beginning to end of Raph Simmons and Calvin Klein. It's yeah. so interesting. So many dynamics. Yeah. Sorry if you can hear my dog barking. <laughs> There's, I think the mailman is here. Um, but yeah, it, it's so crazy because it was so fun and amazing. And I really believe that people will reference those clothes for years, for decades. It will be something 30 years from now that designers are pulling out and saying, I was inspired by this Calvin Klein collection from 2017 mm-hmm. or what have you. But, you know, it was, it was destined to fail because the thing is, he, what does he make? He makes really nice clothes that they don't have access to luxury, luxury, you know, they had a lot of fit issues. They had access to European tailors and all that stuff and factories, but it just wasn't at the same level. That's not what PVH is set up to make jeans and t-shirts. The sales funnel does not match the design. Exactly. And, and, and they just don't have this massive sales funnel, like, but you plug in, you know, a giant sweater, like Freddy Krueger. And it's like, wait, And, and they, yeah. And they don't even didn't have the capabilities to actually make that stuff properly. I remember Mm -hmm. trying to buy a pair of the jeans and they were like four sizes too big. Oh, wow. And it, yeah. I never bought anything. (laughs) I really, I really loved the first jeans and, and I was super disappointed. 
and I am not a tiny person, so I don't understand if you were how you would fit into the jeans. But that right. was the issue. Like they just couldn't sell anything because nothing fit. And um, and they, I huh. think they really thought it was going to be their Gucci, and and they just didn't understand how to execute that. And it's it's really been damaging to these brands. I think Ralph Lauren still has a very very strong brand, but they don't really sell luxury goods. They they act as if they do, but it's really about the mid-level market. Exactly. And so it's just a different business and it's a business that's dying because it's so, so reliant on discounting. And so the, the, to kind of circle back, one of the big issues is there aren't these merchants and retailers and executives who are super passionate about that business here in the mm -hmm. U.S. I think a lot of the ones that are, they end up moving to Europe and working for one of those big groups. And it's just not, there aren't, there used to be these, you know, retail programs at all the big, you know, Gap, Bloomingdale's, what have you, and you would enter this program and get training to be a merchant. And now, it's just not, it's, it's lost a lot of its passion and color and it, it, it's become very data driven in a way that hasn't actually helped it totally. Mm -hmm. And so I see that that business just breaking down and, and we're seeing it in, you know, who's laying people off, who is, who seems worse off in the situation. And it's a lot of these brands that you know, we're kind of just chugging along and, and relying so much on discounting already that right now they have nothing to offer. And I, I think when you think about American fashion, you do think more about people like Kanye West. Yeah, I was about to say, so are we actually, are you building a case right now? Like is the next part of our conversation, like it kind of makes a lot of sense to make basics and essentials and stuff like that, right? I mean. For sure, I, I think that, you know, I don't, the, the For anyone success... listening who doesn't know this, Kanye just did a deal with The Gap. There's a huge controversy with Telfar and et cetera, et cetera. Lauren probably wrote the best, we could, we could get into that, but, but yeah. It, I mean, to me, my big question is, is the Kanye West collection for gap ever actually going to be Are produced see it? <laughs> who knows and honestly i think i don't know if what i will say is i you know he clearly is a designer who references a lot of other designers and and sees a designer he likes and immediately hires them for something and is like a vampire sucking the the talent or energy creative energy out of these people but what i will say is i just bought some skims and which is kim kardashian's line yeah. of like underwear and stuff it's really really good it fits oh, well it's i have a broken foot and this is the best thing i have a boot and i don't wear yeah. the boot because this i'm holding up my yeezy slides my yeezy slides are better for my broken foot than a boot yeah. They're awesome. <laughs> They're great. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, it, I don't know if 
and a couple people have said to me, what if, you know, if he has one more politically charged conversation, will that end it? And I don't think that that, I don't think most consumers vote with their dollars, but I do think like, is, is the stuff good enough to, I don't know if he needs the gap. I don't know if he should have maybe just done it himself in the kind of in the way he did with Adidas that like, Yes, they no he one used bought Yeezy because Adidas was involved. Yeah, yeah. And I think like you can also see this with Rihanna and what she's done, where, you know, a lot of what she's done has worked. It seems like her fashion line hasn't. And it's the place where she probably has had the least control because she knows the least least about how to make a garment or what have you. She knew what people wanted from beauty. She knew what people wanted from underwear and and her collection with Puma, I think, was super successful as well. But I, I think that, you know, I don't know if he needs the gap to do this. I think the gap needs him all, more. Yeah. And He's I probably don't, got a ridiculous deal. Yeah. Well, and I mean, from what the from the SEC documents, it just sounds like if it sells he's going to make a lot of money. And if it doesn't, he's not. And Mm -hmm. I do think that kind of entrepreneurship and that kind of brand is much more American than Proenza Schooler trying to create a beautiful, beautiful luxury brand that is really difficult to sell and market if you're not part of one of those groups think the only example of like that fashion fashion kind of brand being successful in the u.s has been the row in recent years has been the row and a big reason for that is you know they're independent they they have money to fund it and and two is that they actually sell really like we said basic stuff it's very expensive but it's sweaters and trousers and it's not um it's not, they're not trying to be something that they're not or, or trying to be of a certain kind of like capital fashion with a capital F. And mm-hmm. so I think it's like high quality, but like you don't necessarily recognize it on, you know, on someone when you're talking to them, it's not like Balenciaga where like the person's wearing the Balenciaga outfit because they want you to know that they paid for Balenciaga. The row might just be like a beautiful black slip that is just an, a wonderfully made beautiful black slip. Yeah, and it's but it's like four thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, and from what I know, it's been really hard for them too during this period, and who knows what will happen. But the, yeah, just, she just the, got divorced. I I saw that on page so six. Up. I think yeah, um, the whole the whole situation seemed very weird. But yeah. but yeah, I mean, who knows what will happen with that brand? But but the point being that, like, to me, what what Kanye has done, or even what Telfar has done, and and that situation is very strange and. I I hope that people write more about it, but it, it what Telfar, you know, they've spent the last 16 years, tiny, tiny, tiny business trying to build up. And, you know, he thinks about fashion in as a media property, a fashion brand as mm. a, as a media property. And I think that's just a much more modern way of thinking about it. Whereas, there are a lot of like small designers who have, you know, a million or $2 million in sales and they make these very expensive dresses and they want to, you know, be the creative director of 
Louis Vuitton in 10 years or what have you. And so, just, so this is like a Matt Williams track. Like he wants to be that Atelier guy. I, yeah. I love the photo of him that he posted the other day. I, yeah. I thought that was such a, like, I was so happy for him watching that, just seeing that, that yeah. photo of him in the Atelier. Cause that is what he wanted. But I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's many of them. No. And you really can't do that here in the u.s in particular it just mm -hmm. doesn't if you wanted like he would where would you even go where would he go well he moved that? he moved to italy yeah yeah no i'm, so, I'm uh, exactly yeah. i'm saying like i mean in the u.s where would he yeah i, I mean I, think it's possible yeah i think the dreams used to be calvin and ralph and the I dream mean, is now sean neff licensing all of the disney manufacturing because he had a, a, a few factories that made made beanies yeah. And he did a great deal. And now he's the richest person in streetwear in the United States. I think. Yeah. I don't know if that's accurate, but. One yeah. Thing. No, but that's, that's American <laughs> fashion. That's a thing, by the way, if anyone listening doesn't know that Sean Neff, like Neff, like the, the beanies that, that people wear a few years ago, his business is Disney. He makes all of the shirts and all the hoodies and all the stuff that, you know, you buy at Disneyland and Disney stores and stuff like that. It's made by Neff. And that is, and he's, he's like a billionaire. I don't know, quite billion, but like crazy wealthy because he made an incredible licensing deal with Disney. And that's what he scaled up from his cool streetwear brand. That's yeah. like a track to the American, you know, fashion entrepreneur. Totally. That is, that's, that is exactly what to me, modern American fashion is. I mean, people talk about Supreme a lot and that is a good example too, but it isn't, it isn't like this person creating these untouchable designs and it's not like worth or something, you know, it's just, right. it, and, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of the industry is not comfortable with that. It's the same thing with Virgil, like the way people talk about him on Twitter for the last few days, just like talking about how he's not talented. And I just think, Virgil did album artwork for Pop Smoke that came out and it was literally his Pop Smoke who who died and this is his posthumous album and Virgil was assigned the you know honor honestly of making the artwork and he released it and it was the image that comes up first on Google Images with a little you know chain link graphic design overlay that like could have taken not even 30 seconds to make and there was a lot of outcry and it has transferred into him not supporting black lives matter and him just not really being an artist and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of arguments for that, but it's just interesting to me because I think about someone like Carl Lagerfeld and there's a really great fashion book called the beautiful fall. I don't know if you've read it, but it's about, I haven't. it's to me, it's the sem seminal book. Like, if you want to know about how the business has worked for the last 40 years, you have to read it. The woman who wrote it, I think her name's Alicia Drake or Alicia Drake. She was sued by Karl Lagerfeld and it was like a huge thing, but it's basically about Karl Lagerfeld and Yves Saint Laurent and them coming up. And Karl Lagerfeld was not the way they, they talked about it is you were either a couturier or you were a style stylist or however you would say it in French. And Karl Lagerfeld is, is, was a stylist. Like he wasn't 
he's not known for any shape. He's not known for creating any sort of fashion. He's known for the way he put things together and the concepts. And that is what, that's what, you know, has shaped the industry for the last 40 years are these people who are good at like telling a story and making a concept, not necessarily. I think Alexander McQueen was probably the last designer who like really had original ideas and also interesting concepts. He kind of, did both um but when when you look at what's new and modern and you look at virgil in the context of fashion did he does he has he ever done anything original no but he changed the direction of the stripes after someone else went to adidas instead of him yeah and and (laughs) his work is in museums and i think Mm um i don't know i just think i i'm this whole controversy right now goes far beyond his abilities as a fashion designer. But I do think, I think sometimes people in the industry write off that kind of talent when all fashion's about now is marketing. And if you're a good marketer and you're creative, talented marketer, then you're a good designer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's just very different than I think even 20 years ago. And there are too many people stuck in the mindset that like what, what a designer used to be is what, what it can be now. And it's just, it's just not true. Have you read uh, th- this creative directing duo called Nemesis? They wrote something called the Umami Theory of Value. I did ha- read okay. that, yeah. Uh, summing it up just for listeners, like, first of all, read it. I've mentioned it a few times. It's, you know, one plus one equals three kind of design and product and marketing where like, you know, it's Supreme. It's I use the example of Supreme's collaboration with My Bloody Valentine, which was a shirt that had the album from 30 years ago on it. And they sold it for lots of money and it sold out instantly. And it's like, oh, that's their collaboration. Like literally (laughs) printing the image 30 years later on a shirt and like selling it for a shitload of money. Uh, Umami is like this thing that, you know, you combine something, you combine two things and all of a sudden make it like really special and hype and like, but there's no design to it. There's no ideas to it and it's thin. And the, you know, my take on, on Virgil is Virgil is the best of all time. You know, like he's the one who, who harnessed this power and honed his skills. So I'm a huge, you know, I, I think Virgil is incredible and he deserves to be in museums and we, we should understand why his art is art and why he is effective also more importantly but I also am of the mind that, you know, he's kind of abused it as of late yeah. and he's not really been making, he's just, he's just let it go on autopilot for a while, but that doesn't take away from the fact that he's an extremely, extremely valuable figure and there's lessons to, to take. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that we have to, you know, a designer today, like you're saying, so what do you think is the makeup? of a designer to, you know, the right kind of designer today in the lens of that and, and the umami theory of value. Well, that's, it's interesting. I do, I agree. And I think having, I guess, a discourse about Virgil is really important for future creativity. If we don't talk about it and, you know, so many artists kind of sell out and they just, 
phone it in and they become uninteresting, but they are still so important to the canon or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's it's it's fascinating to see that in terms of of what I think makes a successful creative director. I think it's an ability. I, Alessandro Michele is probably Michele. I think it's Michele. I don't know. I'm really bad <laughs> at all at, um, pronunciations. But I don't um, know who you're referring to. <laughs> I'd say, and Gucci. I do think his time will end. Like any any highly emotional thing, it ends at some point. And but I think he is probably the most successful example of taking understanding like how to make clothes look good on people and make things that are super super desirable and that also are emotional and and he to me i think in terms of like what you need is you need to be creative about how you message things and the the product itself has to be interesting i think a lot of you know, you see this with a lot of direct-to-consumer brands. They have really great marketing and, and their marketing so good that it actually allows them to survive for, you know, at this point, 10 years. But you can see it already failing because the product never caught up to the marketing. The two things have to work. Like the product has to be things that people actually want, but you also need to package it in a way that is really exciting to people. And I'd say that he's the best example of being successful on both sides. Like, I don't know. I think that Virgil's Louis Vuitton stuff sells well, but I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's about, you know, the mark, the advertising that goes around it. I think it's about his presence and his, you know, desire to be there. Whereas Off-White, I think was really, really about the product. I don't think Louis Vuitton is as much. Where, Whereas with Alessandro, it's both of those things. It's highly emotional. Yeah, I, can't, I can't name a product that Virgil has made at Louis Vuitton. No. Yeah. Where, whereas with- But I could totally, everything Alessandro's made and, and Off-White, I can- Yeah. Name. And you can also, with, with Gucci, you can also see the advertising. You can see the runway. You can see the books. Jared Leto. Yeah, like all the of it together. Yeah, it's just all, he really created a world. That world is finite and it, it will end. But I think Caring understands that. They don't expect it to be forever. And to me, that's the, the model that they're all trying to create with different people. And it's been various levels cool, of success. Like yeah. Okay. I do think with the umami theory of whatever that was, value. theory of something, <laughs> right? Of value. The yeah. thing that I thought was really interesting about that essay, and I sent it to my boss because it had a lot to do with fashion, is the the zapping of any sort of like sensuality from anything or like sex from anything fashion used to be so fashion sold sex like look at tom ford or or what have you and it feels so genderless now and i don't mean that like non-binary i mean like there's just no there's no being sexy anymore and I think for fashion and for that industry, that has been very hard to 
disengaged from because it was such a huge part of how the business sold and, and how, how things were sold. And now it just doesn't feel like that's how the consumer wants to, if you even look at stuff back from like around the turn of the century, it was just so much about like sexiness. And I just don't think that has much, everybody wants umami. They don't want sexy and there's a huge difference. And it's been, it's been a big shift for, and I think again, Gucci is a good example of this. Like you're never thinking that any of that stuff is sexy, mm-hmm. but umami There's is a, a great word to describe it. to it, but it's not, yeah, it's not selling. So do you think that's because of the cultural climate? Do you think that's a, you know, a me too and, and diversity aspect? I think it's, it's, if you look in the past 20 years, the culture has just gotten a lot more conservative generally. And, and so I do think that those things have something call out culture and all of it has something to do with it. And and people are a little bit afraid, but I also just think the culture itself has moved away from expressing, you know, everybody talks a lot about sexuality, but it's not about sexiness. And I think that that has just become, it's, it's not a a big part of the way people express their creativity now. And which is strange because people are so much more open sexually, but, but it's not about sexiness anymore for, for a lot of, a lot of marketing in particular, but, but yeah, I, I just thought that part of that essay was what I really took away. Like, Oh, this is a, a very, um, what's the word? Sterile? Sterile, yeah. (laughs) Um, Way of marketing and of communicating. It it does feel like there's no, it's, it is all about that. Streetwear generation, the the boys waiting in line on Fairfax, those those guys are not wearing these clothes to fuck. You know, they're they're not wearing these clothes to impress. They're wearing those clothes for each other and to, you know, get daps and like just to have it, have this, uh, this cyclical respect process, but yeah, they're not looking at themselves in the mirror and thinking I look hot. Someone's going to want to fuck me. They're looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, I check the boxes. I'm, I'm with it. I'm, I'm connoting all the semiotics of the culture that I want to be connoting. Yeah. It's symbology. It's, it's semiotics. Yeah. And even when you think about the more like quote unquote sexy fashion, like the kind of stuff that the What's Kardashians- What's the more sexy fashion? Okay. I'd say like the stuff that the Kardashians wear, like fitted stuff, there's, it doesn't, it still feels, there's nothing like carnal about it. It feels very artificial. And as like people's faces have gotten more artificial, everything's very artificial. And to, to like embed sexiness into that or communicate sexiness is hard. I don't think, you know, as much as when you see Khloe Kardashian on her Instagram account and she's trying to look sexy. And I'm sure there are many people think, that, that thinks she does look sexy, but it's not about that. It's about like the image itself and, and the, 
big control that she has over her image. And that to me is a different, especially like I've been watching a lot of movies from the eighties, which are, Hmm. you know, I mean, if you want to talk about politically incorrect, but it's also just about the way that I just, my film that's, that's going to be showing soon. That's basically like, whatever. I don't, this isn't like some deep secret. Like the film is literally me and someone I'm dating revisit a movie from the 80s that I tell this romantic memory about I, I'm like oh my god you've never seen this like there's this beautiful romantic scene and then we watch it and it's a rape and that's <laughs> oh that's god. the inciting incident of my film it, it's interesting I, we tried to watch this movie something wild last weekend oh yeah that's Jonathan Demme and yeah and yeah. we'd never seen it and I do want to watch the whole thing at some point, but I was just like- The whole like horn dog thing is it, like- Yeah, yeah and it just felt like, it just didn't, It. I was just like, this is so strange. And so, it would have needed so much more. They would have had to do so much more work than they had to, to get to the first sex scene. And, <laughs> and that kind of thing, I don't know. It's just the culture has changed so much. And it's you should so- watch Albert Brooks films. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I think fashion is in the middle of that because it is, you know, for many years, it was about selling sex, but it's not mm. anymore. It's about selling, like you said, umami. What about like Rio Uribe, uh, Gypsy Sport, like, just as you're talking, I'm thinking like, who do I get turned on by? Like his stuff, and it's genderless in in many ways, but I think it's sexy. I think it 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 is. It's not just telling people, yes, like go to poppy juice parties and people have sex there. Like it's it's not just referencing that. I think it is sexy. Like I look at those those shoots. And I think these people, men and like, I'm a, I'm a heterosexual, I'm a straight white guy. Like, but I look at those shoots that are, that are all over the map with gender and sexuality. And I'm, I think they're beautiful and they, they're, they're sexy personally. Yeah. I think that Rio's a really good example of that because he is so doing what he wants to do and it's not heavily referenced by other people or heavily packaged. I think Ekhal Slada, similar thing. Cool, yeah, I agree. Like their, especially their casting has been, because it just feels really human. And there's so much that you see, like a Balenciaga, which is super interesting. But I was talking to someone the other day and I went to the last Balenciaga show and thinking about like, what if that's the last like really big show I ever go to um, in terms of spectacle. And it, I'm really glad I went, but. It's something we think about in the music industry too. It's like, whoa, like, will I ever be in a field of a hundred thousand people again to watch yeah. a band I, play? You know? I mean, I know other people will, I just don't know if I will. And it's, mm-hmm. it's an interesting, but I was thinking about it. It's like, yeah, I'm glad I saw that, but it wasn't, those clothes are not, they're to think about. They're not like to remember, if that makes sense. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I think that the the younger kids who are 
more interested in gender dynamics and they're exploring that through clothes and and are just going off of instinct is the only place that you see any real real sexiness. I mean, Laquan Smith is a good example of like more traditional sexy, but I don't his, know Laquan Smith. Will you he's give in me a little New York based designer who's been around for about ten years and okay. he does like sexy cowgirl. It's not it's not, you know, it's not anything. The clothes are not it's 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 not like he's not gonna have a job in in Paris anytime soon, but I think what he's doing is is super true to him and also it does provide something more more pleasurable. Like there's not I guess pleasure is the word. Like there's not a lot of pleasure in most of the clothes that I see. Like the reason that you buy clothes is because you want to feel good and you want, you know, you want to do something pleasurable or dress up or whatever. And there's not a lot of pleasure in most of the apparel that's being put out. It's too, too overwrought. I think that's a great word to use. Yeah. As you said that, it's funny. Like I thought of, cause I, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking like, who are the people that I respond, you know, these ways? My, my ex-girlfriend, I met her when I was, like building, you know, when I was, when I was learning clothes and, um, she's a designer and super small, like, but, um, that was what I got out of her work. Like you, as you said that I was like, that's what I think of Bianca's work. Like she just seemed, I I would watch her modeling it and, and the way that she would cast and the way that she would exhibit things. And it just seemed there was everyone involved felt pleasure from it it wasn't I didn't look at her stuff and think it was that you know what it wasn't sexy in the way that I think Rio's stuff is it it was joyous though it was like I could tell that all parties involved that this is art this is work this is this is community and and yeah and and once I got to know her like I, I learned that even deeper like she loves it yeah that's great I feel like so many designers don't really love what they do at this point. (laughs) That sucks. Yeah, it does. I mean, that's why I, you know, that's why I adjusted my model was because I wanted to love it constantly. And then I would think about what are the things that I just get, you know, my, my body, like I have, I have a diet, you know, not, 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 not just what I eat, but just how I live, what I read, what, you know, I'm talking to you. This is part of my diet today. Yeah. And what makes my, like, when I wake up, what makes me excited to get out of bed and what makes me like do extra push-ups and sit-ups, you know, versus the days where it's like, you know, have to. And um, that was a huge part of it was like, I wanted to, you know, okay, cool. I, I had, I had like record breaking uh, ratios, you know, with, with my revenues, like, but like it was messing up my days yeah. and like what's worth it to me so that, that you know that's why i make those decisions i think it's so important to think about like i only want to do the things the tasks involved in clothes like what what do i get super excited about and what do i do uniquely well and the rest find you know the mvp of it yeah i want to ask you s- s- sort of in the same frame of like the 
you know, design aspects, but more like infrastructural and granular, like corporate fashion brands versus indie. Like what does a startup designer or not necessarily even startup, but just like, you know, someone who's building their thing. What are the, as you see it, the really crucial elements that help someone grow? And of course they're all, you know, everyone's different, has a different focus. Some are more on the entrepreneurial end of the spectrum and some are more on the artistic end of the spectrum. But, you know, what are the real difference makers support wise, infrastructure wise, partnership wise for a designer slash brand to grow today? Yeah. I mean, I think, Oh, it's just a, you, you have to understand that it's going to take a really long time. Like you might have spurts of growth, but then they'll, they'll kind of peter off because not one, a lot, what I see happen a lot is a brand will have one really, really successful product that you can essentially have the business on that one product for three or four years. And then that product is not popular anymore. And they just, you know, are gone. Um, so I think the, the big things are you have to have a product that you're selling for the price that consumers expect to pay for it. So you have to price your product correctly. And we have a bunch of stories on this, on the, on the site and it's challenging, but you need to think about like, you need to think about your cost. You need to think about pricing it, you know, however much you need to, to get the margin you need. And then you need to look at the product and say, is this like really what someone will be willing to pay for it? And then you need to decide, you know, am I going to rely on these other channels, these multi-brand retailers to market the product, or am I going to try to do it myself? Now, if you're selling through wholesale, which is a perfectly fine way to do it and, and selling to multi-brand retailers, you have to realize that you, it's, it's a precarious position because you need them because they help you get the word out, but also they, it's not as, as big of a margin. You're giving up a lot of your margin to these people, this middleman. So suddenly you, if they don't, if they have a bad season and they can't sell your stuff, like, which is what is happening to a lot of brands right now, then this is what Andrew Wyatt from Cala. Oh, I was, I was like, what should I talk about? And he was like, you know, how the death of wholesale might affect startup designers. Yeah. And so the thing is for years, that was the only way you could market. Now, now that's not the case. And I remember years ago, I did a story on the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund and someone, one of the designers who was on the judging panel said to me, you know, 10 years ago, and this was in 2014 or 15. And he said, in 2005, we needed Barneys. You don't need Barneys now to get up and going. And and I do think um, designers really need to be careful about that. I pick a couple of these stores that almost thinking of them as, on your marketing line of your, of your budget and think like they may, I'm, I'm probably going to lose money on this, but it's worth it because I'm in Dover street or whichever store is that store for you. And then the Colette for me. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so I think like the other thing is what, what that's going to require is for you to acquire customers yourself at which costs money. And 
acquiring customers, no matter how you do it, either through wholesale, you end up losing money because it's a shitty deal or through Instagram ads, which are expensive or through opening your own store, which is really, really expensive, but you have to figure out how to acquire customers. And so you need to kind of put that all into your budget. But I'd say in terms of like, what are the things that people need? One is you actually really do have to have a good product and you have to have good marketing. And then you also need the funds to, to make that product known. Or if you don't have the funds, you have to have the patience and the ability to slowly do it. It's not, you know, it's just not like, there are very few brands. Like if you think about like a man's or Gavriel or whatever, like that doesn't, happen for most people and the reason they had such instant success was because that product was really good and the branding was really really good now the customer acquisition part i'm sure has been hard for them too they were mostly wholesale they've tried to go more direct but you know it's really really hard to the other big thing is you have to have know what your expectations are do you want to be a creative director at an lvmh brand well, then yeah, are you doing your brand as a springboard to get yourself to one of the bigger ones? Yeah. Or are you doing it for yourself? And if you're doing it for yourself, then you need to, uh, you need to think about it differently. You need to think about how do I build something that is profitable and that I can keep going. And that might be a $10 million business. That might not be a $50 million business. That might not be a $100 million business. But I think what happened was, and what continues to happen even in fashion school is these designers are sort of sold this bill of goods that if you have a million bucks or 2 million bucks, your parents remortgage, refinance their, finance their home, and they give you this money that you're going to be able to keep going and get really big. And it's just not, it's going to get harder and harder and harder to do that. So I think the other thing is, is like just having expectations and understanding what you want and kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, which is, you know, a lot of young creative people want to do a bunch of different things. And so maybe what you do is you sign up for one of these platforms, these all, all service platforms that will do the production for you, will do the distribution. And you're probably not going to make that much money, but at least you get to do the creative thing. You need to be okay with that. Because like people who think they're going to be the next Michael Kors and be a billionaire or whatever, like that's not going to happen. It, it didn't even happen for Mar Mark Jacobs. You know, he, when, when he left Louis Vuitton, LVMH made a really big deal about how they were going to really try to make Michael Kors the next billion dollar. I mean, Mark Jacobs, the next billion dollar fashion brand. And the, and the truth is his beauty and fragrance does really well. His runway is, is really great, but he had the same problems that every other brand had. The middle kind of dropped out. So his mid-market line stopped working. And, you know, people want to buy high fashion, but what they really want to buy is handbags. And he didn't have a hip handbag for a long time. So even like one of the greatest designers in the world couldn't do what, what Michael Kors did. I think that time has just passed. So it's it's also about like, what do you want and, and striving for something different than perhaps the last generation, you know, was able to achieve. Why did Tom Ford succeed 
more re- I, I think we we can understand like the Gucci aspect, but you know, similar timing to Mark Jacobs and and not Michael Kors, but like why did Tom Ford succeed so much? I mean, leaps and bounds above. Well, why did that I mean, work? Tom Ford has an incredible fragrance business and beauty business, and I think eyewear and maybe underwear they never launched underwear i can't remember no underwear exists he owns personally owns the license for all those businesses his fashion company which is he doesn't i think he may majority own it but is owned by an investor they have a they have a significant investor are they successful i don't know like who knows okay I mean, who? I'm sure that it does well in terms of like it sells a lot of suits and they have a nice, a good clientele. But is that, that's not the success. The success is all the stuff around it. And those are all licensing deals. So what it, it kind of comes back down to that is that you can't really have a successful brand based on clothes anymore. Mm. <laughs> Expensive clothes, at least. You could have a successful brand brand based on you know bargain basement stuff but you can't have a successful brand based on fancy clothes it has to be accessories or you know all the other stuff that kind of goes around it if you look at something like chanel i mean they sell a lot of actual clothes as well but the the crux of their their success is beauty handbags fragrance you know all of that stuff and and so but like the actual selling of clothes, like if you think of something like an Oscar de la Renta or, you know, that's probably one of the last businesses. And I, I don't think they're that huge, but that, you know, make money selling nice clothes in America. The row is another one. They, they make money. sell. they have accessories that are successful too. But if you look at like a Carolina Herrera, another like real, like, fancy clothes brand that sells fancy clothes the majority of their business is their secondary line that's sold in other markets and then also fragrance it's just not it's not about the most successful clothes businesses are not uh, in america at least are not or even anywhere like they're not the the they're predominantly not making money out off of the actual apparel it's mostly off of the other stuff so someone's a startup, you know, someone's starting, a, they're the designer or they are the executive, you know, founding a brand. The upsell, the way that they make a lot of money is they personally, you know, they get it to a level where they can personally go get a job somewhere bigger. That's one, right? Which yeah. is not what most people are doing because the bigger brands are typically not matched for the skill set that a startup brand would develop you can develop your renown as a brand and sell accessories and, you know, make, make most of your money on accessories, but continue to market through high fashion or cool stuff, whatever. Um, Or the other lane is you just have a fashion brand that does whatever it does, hopefully pays for itself at least. And you go and you make money on your renown in whatever ways you, you do, which could be, you know, speaking engagements, 
you could be, you know, if, if I put it on myself, it's like filmmaking and music and whatever else I'm going to do, but having this outlet that increases my creative output and my, you know, personal awareness, my profile. Yeah. Is that accurate? Is that like, those yeah, are kind of your that, three. I think that pretty much sums it up. If and, and there is, I mean, there are people. We have a podcast coming out this week on Giles Deacon, who stopped making ready to wear and just makes like made to order gowns for people. How big that business actually is, I don't know, but it's big enough for him to keep going. And for some people, that's that. I think there are actually a lot of very talented designers who would be much happier just having private clients. And right. having, you're essentially, it's you and two other people that you bring on when you have a project to a freelance and, and that's it. I'm, but, but yeah, I think that the three that you laid out are really the way that, that it happens. And, and, I, and I don't think when people are thinking about when they want to start a brand, I don't think people are, many people think about it like that. I think that they are kind of just like, I want to be a fashion designer. I want to have a brand that everybody wears and I'm so excited, but they're not, understandably, they're not like, what's my plan? And I think that has a lot to do with, you know, the education system and, and what they're taught in school versus what what they need to be, need to know when they exit. And yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a complicated business and it, it takes someone who really loves it and wants to kind of deal with all, all the crap of it to, to keep going through. I think what's important to accept in that framework of those three options is that in none of those routes will the thing that got you into it be the thing that you cash out or, or, or not necessarily cash out, but just become rich for whatever makes you want to, unless you do it specifically with just a means to that end. But the reason why you want to start the brand, what you're trying to say, the lifestyle that you want to have around starting this clothing company, making these designs that you have in mind will never be the thing that gets you to, you know, a million dollars a year personally, that will not be it. Something else will. And you yeah. have to understand that you're going to have to pivot at some point if you want to make significant money. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially the marketing. Like you might still get to do that thing. Tom Ford still designs beautiful right. clothes, but he's making money off of fragrance and lipstick. It's not why he has a billion dollar company. It's, yeah, it's exactly. other things. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit before I, I, I want to get uh, more on you actually. And the idea of going into the framework of mainstream press, indie press, social media, like where do you see in your personal experience and in your observations of the, the writer, the, you know, like I learned of business of fashion and Lauren Sherman separately. And I read articles by you knowing that they, you know, even, even now that they're, they're combined, I read your articles because you are writing them and I will like, I might see five in the newsletter, but like, I make sure to read yours cause you are you. And I read you before. Uh, like I think of 
obviously on the social side, there's, it's all individuals, but even at like New York times, like Taylor Lorenz, you know, is, yeah. is not New York times. She's Taylor Lorenz to me. And the fact that like, I don't think most people even know that she writes for the New York times. Yeah. So how have you seen that evolving over the last few years and where do you think it's going and what do you think the differences are in the mainstream stuff and the independent stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I became a reporter in two, at the end of 2005. So like 15 years and it's changed dramatically in terms of there's always been star journalists, but the association with the company that you work for I think matters less than it used to. And, you know, for me, I, I work at BOF because I really believe in our business model and I also get to do the kind of journalism that I want to do at a place full time, which is just so rare. I, I think, you know, I hear so many of my friends who are in situations that they feel trapped in. I've never felt that way. I was a freelancer for a really long time and I could easily go back to that. And I very early on in my career decided, so I was a reporter at Forbes and had no interest in business journalism. I wanted to like work at Teen Vogue. That was my dream or, or Jane magazine or something. Um, just like a cool fashion magazine and write, be a fashion news writer. But I got this job at Forbes when I was young and realized, oh, this is actually way more interesting than writing display copy about, you know, a black, a mini, black mini dress or, or what have you. And I thought there were very few people covering the business side. Imran hadn't started Business of Fashion. There was Terry Agins at the Wall Street Journal, but that was basically, she was the only person who was like, other than Women's Wear Daily, really covering the business of the industry. And I thought, well, I have this platform. They don't seem to care that I want to write about this stuff. I might so as well you, learn. early days, you knew like business of fashion kind of was your lane. Yeah. I mean, because I got this job and it was super interesting. I was like, if I can like become special because I know more about how the business right. works than most people, then that will be helpful. And I ended up taking a few different jobs and I was an online editor at Lucky Magazine at Condé Nast. And absolutely, I mean, it very nice people absolutely hated it, but stayed for a year, then saved up money for six months and went freelance. And because I was like, I just, this is not for me. I want to write. I want to be a reporter. I want to write. And it's in, in fashion, like you can't, you can be a reporter who just writes about lucky was more recommendations and yeah. You know, yeah. News and blasts about and things, even not, at, at yeah. like, a glossy magazine. I didn't want to, I wanted to do reporting and the reporting is in the business because fashion really only became a business 20 years ago. Before that, it was just like a cottage industry. And now it's this global, huge thing, interconnected business. And to be able to cover that as it was being built from the ground up was really exciting. So I, when I went freelance, I emailed like my old editors from Forbes, people I knew who worked at business magazines, all the fashion publications. And I became the person who, if Marie Claire needed a business story, they would call me about, you know, Harvard Business School fashion startups and fast company. I remember I wrote a couple of things on Glossier because they were like, oh, you know, Emily Weiss, you can mm -hmm. write, or you know of her or whatever, you can write about it. And I, develop this thing. And yeah, I think that like, 
it's really important. I, a lot of reporters, it depends on the kind of person you are, but I realized very early you're kind of taught, especially if you start out in a more traditional media background, not as a writer, especially back then, like don't, don't be too public. Don't you, they want you to talk and control. Yeah. Yeah. And they want you to like go on TV and talk about the business or your stories, but they don't want you to like have an opinion publicly or whatever. And as a freelancer, it's the opposite. Like you have to brand yourself and become known for something. And I, I just realized very early on, like if I was going to keep getting work, I had to become known for something. And so when I, I went full-time at BOF in 2016, early 2016, but really September, 2015, I went on contract with them. And the reason I did it was because it was like the work that I wanted to be doing. And I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, if I can't, if I do this, am I going to lose myself or anything like that? I didn't feel that way, but I also felt confident enough that I could keep sustain freelance work. And so I think Taylor, I don't, I can't speak for her, but I, you know, working somewhere like business fashion or definitely the New York times that does afford you a certain level of security if, if nothing else. And a platform like BOF is amazing because everyone in the industry reads it. And I feel like I really get my voice heard and people see it. I'm sure Taylor feels like New York Times, like she's a household name because that stuff gets distributed everywhere. And, and that's important. But in reality, Taylor could leave and have a newsletter that she charges $10 a month for. And just like you said, get more than enough people to pay for her work. And, and so I think, I think what publications are realizing is you do need reporters who of course, when they're writing for your publication, like my voice is different for BOF than it is when I write my personal newsletter or what have you, because I'm writing for the BOF, you know, brand, I'm writing for that audience, but it's still me and it's, it's the kind of work I want to do. Um, but I think that all these publications realize that you do need these, these writers that people are willing to follow because mm -hmm publications themselves have less weight than they used to. And BOF is unique because it's pretty new. So it's, it's significance in the industry continues to rise. But if you look at something like, like any of the fashion magazines, it's not about those people. If they leave that magazine, I remember when I left lucky not, you know, I, I don't know if I, but I was worried. I mean, I was going to be freelance for the first time. I was like, what if I don't have an association? What if no one wants to hire me or no one wants to take me seriously? And I think that people's identities used to be way more connected to the publications they worked for. And now it's much more easy to see people outside of those things and just for their yeah. own abilities. Um, and I think it's really important. I, I think I encourage it with the writers on our team to, you know, I'm not saying that they need to be like super vocal, but I, they need to promote their own work and they need to have, they need to create, you know, authority around their name. And, and if they want people to read their stuff, it's, it's something like, 
I, I've always been really interested in like how many people read my stories, how many people subscribe because of that. And some writers aren't like that at all. And, and for me, it is just like that exchange with the reader. And, and it's more, all of these, we were talking about subscriptions before, like all of these consumer publications need to have writers that people follow. Like New Yorker is really good at this yes, they don't break any news. They don't like really write about anything that you must read. But I mean, sometimes they do. <laughs> but generally they have incredible writers that I'm like, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna subscribe to this for Nomi Fry. I'm gonna subscribe to this for Tad Friend or whatever. Like there, you, you care about these people. You want to hear what these people specifically have to say. And I mean, the New Yorker's always been like that, but every publication needs to be like that now. Esquire used to be like that when, you know, when David Granger was the editor, I think, I mean, now that magazine would feel so dated because it was so much about like a very specific sort of masculinity. But when it was in its prime, like it had an incredible voice and it had writers whose names that you knew. And and I think in Vanity Fair, same thing. And I think like every publication needs to be like that now more than ever. So one example before before we wrap, I, I, I wouldn't make you do this, but it's paywalled. And I know that a lot of people won't be able to read. I talk about Kanye all the time. And you just wrote, you know, a super in-depth article about it. Can you kind of, can we go into it a little, you know, the gap? Far. And we talked about it a little bit earlier, but like, would you, would you mind giving your feelings on the situation going on right yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, no, of course. And I, I, I do not encourage people to subscribe and read this article. Yes. And, and it, we do it. have a dollar, um, a, a dollar trial if you want there to you subscribe for a month. Um, I just want to say, like, I specifically didn't write that article. It was my oh, colleague, sorry, Chantal Fernandez. Okay. It's fine. <laughs> We're very close and we work very closely together and I worked with her on it. So I'm happy to talk about it. But yeah, I mean, essentially- What are your feelings anyway? Yeah. Yeah. So on Kanye, Kanye essentially said, announced, I got a call the night before being like, Kanye West is going to, you know- has a deal with Gap. They're they're just signing it today, or or what have you. We ran the story the next day. Chantal has reported a lot on Telfar Clemens and his work, and and what they've done with you know a lot. A big thing in fashion is, and in every brand, brand building is community building, and Telfar's ability to like make this hit handbag. Um, that it's just really really impressive, and it and it says so much about culture right now and and what's interesting and cool and and I, I'm very impressed by him but anyway Telfar had also signed a deal with Gap and to do a collaboration by no means should Gap not have collaborations by two black designers but for some reason you know I I I did it didn't occur to me that because Kanye was doing a collaboration that the Telfar collaboration was canceled it it was I, I think a similarity was that both announcements had the Telfar Gap announcement had Gap with the Telfar symbol embedded into the Gap logo, the Yeezy 
Kanye announcement had the Yeezy symbol, Yeezy kind of embedded into the Gap logo or, or what have you. And so those were two similar things. And I think probably one of the reasons that people's eyebrows were raised, but Chantal immediately was kind of like, you know, people on Twitter were like, what's going to happen to Telfar? And the other thing is that the Telfar thing is months old and we haven't seen an update on it or any clothes or anything. We don't know that it's substantiated and it's, you know, we're announcing another thing during quarantine, you know, yeah. during the pandemic and yeah. there has not been an update on Telfar. And there had been a party in Paris right before the pandemic to celebrate the Telfar thing. So Chantal did a little digging and essentially they had canceled the Telfar, they had put the Telfar thing on indefinite hold. And we saw, you know, Gap, we saw information from Gap about this. Um, we saw, you know, it, it in writing that they had put it on hold, but they were planning on still paying Telfar, which I think was like, I think his design fee was something like $100,000 or something, but they had sort of just let it drop off. And meanwhile- Which is arguably, I mean- for the amount of infrastructure that he has at this point, which is still not massive, that $100,000 is nothing. I mean, that's like yeah. probably a loss from the work that he had to do. Yeah, exactly. And and they still, had, Gap had the samples. And meanwhile, Gap got a new CEO. Gap's CEO was fired during this period. They got a new CEO who came from an, a, a, another, um, from Old Navy, which is also owned by the same parent company. But you know, I think what ha- what probably happened, and this is me totally projecting, is that the new CEO came in, the plans for the Telfar thing went on indefinite hold. Somehow they were connected to Kanye, whether Kanye approached them or not. I don't know. I don't remember if Chantal's story said that. I don't think it indicated either way. I have a hunch that Kanye probably did approach them. Um, it's been his, I have, we have many you know, him on the record saying how much he wants to work there, that kind of right. stuff. And, you know, so they they kick it off. They give him this deal that's essentially royalties based like many of his deals. And if he makes a certain amount of money for Gap, he gets a certain amount of money and Telfar sort of got left hanging and and had been the ones to you know, Telfar and Babak, his, his creative and business partner, they really were, they, they kind of kicked off this whole, how can we make Gap interesting again in a modern way? And, and now it's, it's been usurped. And I, the thing that I don't know, I haven't read Vanessa Friedman's piece on it. I'm sure it's very good. The thing that I have been, I hope people talk about more is this idea of like, why did everybody kind of say, okay, Kanye thing is happening, Telfar can't. They make totally different clothes. They they have different concepts. They appeal to different kinds of people. Just because it's like two black designers, yeah, they're can't both they black, both do it? But these are like completely different worlds. Like the, the people who buy Yeezy and the people who buy Telfar are completely different yeah. customers. And, uh, the, and what Awareness, Chantal, you know. Chantal said is like, well, maybe... Kanye has a non-compete uh, thing in his deal. And that's absolutely might be true. If Gap signed that, that's a little crazy because that means that Gap can't do any collaborate. Maybe there are certain designers in that group. I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen has it. Has Gap done any other collaborations of note in the last, you know, 
chunk of years? They used to do a lot of collaborations and like probably 10 years ago, they did it. Yeah. Cause I can't them. think of anything for a long no, time. No, But okay. I do think that if I were them, I would not. And I don't know, like, we don't know. Maybe there isn't, wasn't anything. Maybe they are still thinking about doing the Telfar thing, but what it said to me, especially the way people reacted to it was this idea of like, why why can't there be two collaborations from two, two different black designers which as you said like once again it's kind of like it's like there's a slot for the the token yeah. black slot you know yeah. with the collaboration like yeah there's and, virgil but you can't get another one you know? yeah exactly and and that part of it was quite strange to me and especially given but it's real it's it's a yeah. perception it's a perception problem but it's also like okay who is the other virgil you know, yeah. when, when, you, when you look at it, it's like, we have yet to do that, actually. It's like totally. Steve McQueen is in Cannes, but who's, oh, who's the other? Like, you did two Steve McQueen films. Cool, okay. Like, now we got Lodge Lee. You know, he, yeah. he won an award at Cannes and, and, you know, okay. And Matty Dio, but like, they're not on that, they're not in that level. Yeah. They're, they're still being kept down here and it's like, oh, oh, oh but we got Steve McQueen. Yeah, and so I, I hope that, you know, I hope what's happening in the U.S. I, first of all, I hope that people explore that more. Hopefully, we'll get to explore more on BOF, but also just generally, I hope fashion writers explore it more and talk about it more because, you know, we've been we've spent the last two month and a half in the midst of this civil rights, up you know, this uprising, and we're all talking about how, as you know, especially those of us who are white are talking about how we can, as what are we supposed to do as white people to, to help move this conversation forward and change the, the structure of how we do business. And, yeah. and I think that this kind of just happened at this time that it's like so ripe for examination. And as I said previously, like the question now is, does the stuff get produced? Does Gap even make it till that point they have a licensing deal with img which i'm sure is bringing in a lot of money for them and you know i i think gap probably survives for a bit longer but we'll see the kind of deals allegedly 10 years yeah yeah and who knows who right it's now, like diversity we have this threshold it's like we have this threshold model where it's like yeah. one at a time. So it's like get one as the example first. Don't, like we don't need to skip all the way to like making it actually diverse. Like first we can have the, you know, another article that that um, that, that you guys had was the Ty Haney Outdoor Voices article recently. And, you know, that's another, uh, this will be like a whole nother conversation and we don't need to start on it. But it's like the same with, with, diversity gender diversity it's like often you know we need the headline like first then we need like one executive then we need to meet the quota and like years later you get to the maybe you get to it actually being like yeah regular just diversity but like you do these so so yeah it's like gap like okay cool we did one black designer we don't need to because that would be skipping this step of yeah. we got the we technically did it you know yeah it's it's um it's something that i think every industry is dealing with right now and fashion is 
certainly not immune to it. And it is, you know, there are just so many different conversations around, around the difference between the way women and men are treated in the workplace or women executives versus male executives. And, and there's just so much right now that I feel like every, a lot of stories we do are confronting these issues and the outdoor voices saga, that one I did write. Um, It's been interesting. Like this is an example of a highly creative, smart person who came up with a really good idea from all the reporting I've done is not able to execute and also has not been able to hire people to help execute. But there is this added layer of her being a young woman who there are certain expectations that, you know, if she was a guy, would this have all gone down the way it did? I don't know. Um, And that is an extra layer of it. And I think in so many stories that we're writing right now, you know, we have to confront that as reporters and address it. And, you know, it has to do with gender issues, race issues, just cultural issues of like how you treat other human beings. It comes up every single day. I get an email every day from a freelancer about another example of like workplace culture gone awry. And, you know, the only way, you know, what- It's not a feminist issue. It's not a racism issue. It's it's just a, you know, human equality it's, issue. It's, yeah. I mean, it's like all three of those things and it yeah. just isn't going to end. And so, you know, as a reporter, I feel like my responsibility is to kind of shed life, light on these systemic problems so that yeah. they will progress. But it's, it's crazy. It's, it, it comes up in everything now. It's just not, it's, it's all, and you know, so, the environment and and what the industry does to that is another element of it but these are all very very <laughs> challenging issues to tackle and and you know not everybody is up for it but it's something that like but you guys do a great job like you're a nia williams uh podcast that's up that people can access for free that's the most recent business of fashion episode based off of their uh what do you call it? Summit or conference or? Yeah, we had, it was a summit. This, summit? Okay. Yeah, I mean, what, whatever. I don't know what word people use. <laughs> yeah. uh, we but, we you know. used the word summit. Yes. Yeah, summit, like people talking with people listening, but they did a podcast version of it with Ania Williams. I hope I'm pronouncing her first name. Okay. But um, it's, it's, it's a great listen. You know, uh, we didn't go too far into the, you know, the, the current events of around diversity in this talk, but they're out there and they're on business of fashion and they're really, really good and thorough and action oriented. It's not just people. Um, I, I liked the frame that, that, that Imran built for that episode, which was not just like, talk to us about the, you know, the problems and the work. it was, it was framework. It was, it was a checklist almost of, of her process. And it's someone that someone could take notes from and implement. Yeah. And I really, I really like that. And then that goes back to something, you know, m- more of what w- you and I did speak on in this episode that I've been reading your work for a long time and taking notes and, and, and saying, okay, this is a thing that I have to do. I have to, you know, making a list, making a, okay, cool. This answered that question, not just these general articles talking about, you know, vague ideas, but very actionable and practical and you know, hearing this is this is enriching for me because hearing the perspective that it comes from from two thousand five of where you 
identified this sort of synthesis of, of elements that needed to be had. And, and I've retroactively been the you know, receiver of that. And, and you did a great job. I mean, you continue to do a great job, uh, but, but you did a great job making tangible what you identified as needing to happen back in 2005. And now that exists for people. Back in 2005, it did not. And now if you are someone who, who wants these questions answered and wants to learn, like, what's the outline that I have to build? Like, you can access it. It's, it's on this website. Like you can yeah, go read cool. it. Lauren writes it all the time <laughs> as does Imran and, and, and your other staff. Like it's great. And she's not the only one. There's other people, but uh, this is probably my favorite. I, I would say business of fashion is, is levels above anything else out there. There's, uh, Thank you. there's, there's some newsletters that are really good that write once a month, maybe that go super in depth that are really valuable, but there's nothing that even comes close to the breadth of, of covering the entire industry regularly. So it's a, it's a pleasure to, to be able to hear it directly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It means a lot and we try really hard. And if there's ever a story <laughs> you want me to write, just email me and say, can you please write about this? I need help because that's, you know, I get a lot of my ideas from people. That's awesome. That. And, and anyone listening, take that sincerely because I think that's, yeah, that, that, that kind of crowdsourcing of, of what's going on in the world is really important. And, and cool. it's good that you do that. Thank you. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for your time, for your work, for your openness. And thanks, Sean. Good it's luck great to meet you your, finally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> me too. I'm really happy. Uh, good luck on your, on your trip. Thank Part you. of me is like, actually, fuck it. Like, I hope it's a disaster and you come back to New York. But <laughs> I'm sure I'll be back a lot and hopefully we can meet in person the next time I'm in town. We'll have a proper tea. This is like what I've said to everyone. Like, like I'm like, the whole, the original version of this show is meant to literally be having tea together. So I have to do a season two with everyone where we actually can share some tea. I'll so be there. I hope to do that in the future. Okay. Thank you again. Right. It was so nice to talk. And so have nice a good to day. talk. You have a wonderful day. Thank Bye. you again. Bye. Bye. If you're watching this on video, you'll see my black glasses I'm wearing. They're by Genesee, G-E-N-U-S-E-E.com, an eyewear company out of Flint, Michigan, founded, owned, and operated by my friend, Ali Rose. They employ the structurally unemployable locals and recently incarcerated. They are made from recycled plastic water bottles. They're the first eyewear brand in the U.S. to be completely circular economy. They donate 1% of their net proceeds to Flint Kids Fund, aiding in the long-term health and development of those affected by the Flint water crisis. I really like them. I wear them all the time. They're female-founded. They check a lot of boxes of things that I support, and they offered you guys a discount of, I think, 20%, something like that. So type in tea with SG at www.genesee.com, G-E-N-U-S-E-E.com, and get yourself a pair.